honor for the nation, for our country. Thank you, Peter, for just shepherding our hearts and focusing our hearts and minds on our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, this morning. Well, later this morning, we're going to be having a members meeting. And we try and do this at least three times a year, if not four times a year, just before each semester to just reconnect with where Christ is leading our church through his word. And in light of that, this morning, we're going to take a little bit of a break from Genesis 3. And uh, we will finish up, though, Lord willing, if Jesus doesn't come first. But we're going to take a break this morning just to consider, in light of our, our membership meeting, what Jesus has to say about church membership what he has to say about church membership. Membership in the local church. Membership in what Charles Spurgeon called the dearest place on earth. The dearest place on earth. And um, some of you who have worked with our new members team, you know one of the books that we've been going through has been uh, Jonathan Lehman's Nine Marks book on church membership. I brought a couple of extra copies today. So If it's your desire, ask, seek, and knock, and those books will be yours. It's been a source of encouragement to uh, myself and those who have labored uh, in shepherding the new members of our church. But the church is, as we've heard this morning, this is is Christ's home and his household. And it's not just pie in the sky, as Charles Spurgeon pointed out. It is indeed the dearest place on earth. It really is. And um, if you're like me in any way, I'm sure you're not like me in a few ways, but if you're like me in any way, it can be all too easy to take God's greatest gifts in our lives for granted at times. Be that our spouses, be that our children, be that our families, be that our health or our work, but that is especially true of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and His church. It can be our propensity, it's in our hearts as sinners, our natural inclination is to take God's good gifts for granted. And that's especially true of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and that's especially true of His local church. But the good news that we've been studying recently is that God is a God who draws near to sinners. And he gives us the help that we need. And he gives it especially through his son and through his spirit and through his word. And so this morning to help us and to use the help that really he's given us, just to appreciate how good Christ has been to us and how that goodness is poured into the membership of the local church This morning we're going to look at a a familiar text. It's a text that we typically go through in the new members class. We also went through it for the equipping of the small group or discipleship group leaders for Logos. It really is very much the foundation and framework of much of the discipleship work that is done at this church. And to my mind, it's a text that we can't go through enough. And I say that for myself. I was so blessed this semester, as I said, okay, this is going to be the text we're going to equip and train with behind the scenes for the Lagos ministry, just to go through it again and just to be refreshed by the Lord and be brought back to have uh, aspects of my life to be brought to repentance as we come face to face with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that text is, is Matthew 16, 
verses 13 through 20. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. Now, you'll recall Matthew is the first book that we find in our New Testament. And it's the gospel that begins our New Testament. And it really bridges the gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it contains the God-breathed words that were written for us by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but through his disciple and his apostle Matthew, who is also known as Levi. And Matthew, as you'll recall, was a tax collector. He was a lawbreaker. He was someone who was banished from the temple and the synagogue because of a life that was being lived in rebellion to the law and the covenant of the Lord. And yet Christ came up to him one day as he sat at his tax collecting booth making his money and he called him to follow him. And Matthew, it says, left everything, his money, all of the stuff that was there, to follow Jesus. And then the next thing he's doing is he's throwing a party at his home for all his friends and inviting all his other lawbreaker friends to come in and fellowship with Jesus. He's witnessing. He's evangelizing. He's bringing them to see Jesus. His life has been transformed miraculously by the hand of the Father. And this is the one who is writing this account for us. And as you read through this, you really see Matthew loves Jesus. And his desire is that you would know him in the same way that Matthew has come to know him through the power of the Lord, radically transformed. And it's in this gospel account that Matthew shows us, and he spends meticulous care showing us how the life and the ministry of this person, Jesus of Nazareth, how this life and ministry of Jesus of Nazareth fulfills God's promised gift of a heavenly king. Throughout the scriptures, God promises the gift of a heavenly king who will come and bring a reign of righteousness here on earth that will save his people from their sin, that will save them from the wrath and judgment of God, which will come on all sinners, that will save his people from the darkness of this world, and that will usher in the kingdom of heaven, a righteous rule here on earth. And as you read through Matthew's gospel, this is a point he makes over and over again as he reaches back into the Old Testament repeatedly and quotes scripture and says, this has been fulfilled. Those words, he's, he's drawing that connection for the early church and especially among those first Jewish believers who were familiar with these texts to say, look, let's understand Jesus. Let's understand what's happening. Let's understand our lives, not through our experience or our opinions, but through the light of God's word. And when the Lord allows us through the power of his spirit to see our world through the light of God's word, it starts to become a lot less dark because we begin to see the light of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Well, that's what Matthew's doing. And as he does so, the light that begins to be shone in our hearts and lives is a light that shows us that Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the King of Heaven. Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the King of Heaven. And the good news of God's Word and Matthew's Gospel is that Jesus, as the King of Heaven, 
Jesus has entered into our darkness and this kingdom of this world. He's come near to bring God's kingdom, God's rule and God's reign according to God's word, God's kingdom. Jesus has come near to bring God's kingdom into Satan's kingdom. A kingdom of rebellion and a kingdom of men. And we see this very visibly in the Lord's Prayer, in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, as he teaches his disciples how to pray, and he shows them how to pray differently from the, rest, the way the rest of the world prayer, prays. You know, where we've got our wish list of needs, and we come to our God, and we ask 20 times, I want this, I want a ham and cheese sandwich, I want a big house, I want a great wife, I want this, that, and the other thing. And if I put enough money in the offering plate and I ask enough and I say it enough and I serve enough in the church, God's going to give me all those things. I'll kind of deal with God. Well, as we come to the Lord's Prayer, Jesus shows us that his kingdom is not like the kingdom of this world. And he shows us the king of this kingdom is not like the kings of this world. And he shows us that the citizens and the members of his kingdom... The reason he has come to gather his citizens and his members into his kingdom and uh, help them do what they can't do for themselves. They can't get into the kingdom, so he's got to bring them in. He shows them that his citizens and the members of his kingdom are not like the citizens and members of this world. And, And that's exemplified in the prayer that he shows them how to pray. What does he say? Our Father in heaven... Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. The gospel is the good news. About God's kingdom. His rule and his reign. The rule and reign of his spirit and his word. Coming into our lives and coming into this world. And saving sinners like you and I. Cleaning us up. Washing us of our sins. Making us what we're not. And providing us with passports that we don't deserve to be citizens, not in our kingdom, not in the kingdom of this world, but in the kingdom of heaven. And brothers and sisters, that's what church ministry is all about. The church is not, per se, the kingdom. They're not the same. The Roman Catholic Church and many churches have made that error. It is part of the kingdom. It is part of the kingdom of this world. And its citizens and its subjects are not like the citizens and subjects of this world. And throughout much of the gospel, Jesus goes very clearly. It's like a membership manual. It's one of the reasons why when people become new members of the church, we now give them a little journal with the gospel of Matthew for them. So that they can read Jesus' membership manual per se that shows us what membership in a local church And being part of Christ and being part of his ministry is all about. And that's how good and gracious our Savior is. He just doesn't throw us in. He gives us everything we need to walk with him. And as we come to Matthew 16, our section of scripture today, Jesus is showing his disciples that his church, his ecclesia, is part of his kingdom. And he's showing us that membership in his church is ultimately not the decision or work of men. 
membership in his church and in his local church is ultimately, brothers and sisters, a gift and a blessing from God. That truth, brothers and sisters, should radically change how every true child of God thinks of membership in the local church. We get it backwards. But Jesus turns it right side up. That membership in the local church is a gift and privilege that's given to us by our Father in heaven. And that's our first point for this morning. Membership in the local church is a calling, is a privilege, and is a gift of God. Not of men. It's a calling and a privilege and a gift of God and not of men. If you have your Bibles, let's read together Matthew 16, 13 through 20. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they all said, or excuse me, and they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Petras, and on this rock, this Petra, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. For most Americans, church is essentially a volunteer organization. In fact, in many church planting manuals and Books that are in Christian bookshelves, you'll, you'll read that. Church is considered to be essentially a volunteer organization where membership, participation, and service in the church is, by definition, voluntary. Now that sounds like a somewhat valid obligation, but the implication of that is membership, participation, service in the local church is voluntary that also means it's non-essential and it is optional. It means you decide how you participate, how you serve, and what role you will play in this organization. The choice is yours. And sadly, brothers and sisters, this mindset drives much of American church ministry, and it affects all of us. All of us. As John Piper likes to say, we are more the product of our culture than we care to admit. You walk into a grocery store, you get to choose what flavor of gum you want. Turn your TV on, you get to choose what channel. Want to get a health club, you get to choose which health club you go to. Wear a mask or not wear a mask. You get to choose what you're going to do. I mean, that's what 
all the spats are happening in America over. As we come to church planting and we come to missions and we come to ministry, we say this same pattern. How do we plant churches? How do we start ministries? Well, we call for volunteers. We hold an interest meeting. And we gather people together and say, we're going to plant a church. Who would like to come? And we gather together and we tell the information. We say who's going to be leading it. And then we say, let's pray about it. And you go home and you pray about it and you think about it. And see if God is calling you. Now, that's not to disparage the good work that comes out. But I think you'll see as we think about an interest meeting. Whose interests is that meeting about? And we see that very much we have a mixed picture. And we see when the pattern is about our interests, when we are no longer interested in the church plant, the mission, or the ministry, we tend to walk away. And that tends to show the proof that what was driving that was not a command from Christ in our life, but a desire, a wishful thinking, or an interest from our heart. Who drives and who decides what ministry and planting and churches are all about? Is it us or is it God? And brothers and sisters, I've raised this up to say, look, we, we all struggle with these things. We've all come up in the church. We've all seen that this is the way things are done and this is how we go. And we think with the best intentions, okay, this is, I'm serving the Lord. But brothers and sisters, I think sometimes we're not aware of how man-centered we think and we are and we do in just about every aspect of our lives, our marriages, our home, our parenting, our work. And our worship. But when Jesus says in verse 18. Upon this rock. I will build my church. Jesus makes it very clear. His church is not a non-essential. Voluntary. Optional organization. That is driven by the interests of men. The church is not as good or only as good as the people who show up or expressed interest in participating. Jesus makes it very clear. The church of God's word is first and foremost his church. He is the king. He is the one who makes this special and set apart, and powerful, and wonderful, and good, and filled with the love that we sang about this morning. And if He's not present, it's not His church. If His Word is not present, it is not His church. If His agenda is not driving things, it is not His church that we're participating. It's ours. And He decides... Who is in that church and who is not in that church. He decides who gets to come along and he decides who leads and who follows. And in fact, as you read through the Old Testament and the New Testament, God spends an awful lot of time and Jesus spends an awful lot of time, brothers and sisters, spelling out very clearly to his people 
what the criteria is and who is in his kingdom and who is not and who is part of his mission and his church and who is not. He's very clear. There's no ambiguity, brothers and sisters. The word he uses for his church is ecclesia. You're familiar with this. Ek, like exit, what goes out or what is out. And klesia from kaleo, the verb kaleo, which means called and put it together. Those who are called out. Called means someone is calling you. Someone's making the decision about where you are supposed to be. Throughout scripture and in the ancient world, the ecclesia was an assembly of citizens. Card-carrying members. An assembly of citizens who had been called out or gathered together by their king or lord for a specific purpose. And typically, the ecclesias, those gatherings of those citizens who had been gathered together by their king or lord for a specific purpose, they were gathered together by their king to administrate civic affairs or to defend the community in a battle. There's going to be a war. There's going to be a problem. Let's get the ecclesia together, the citizens. Let's gather them together and let's hand out instructions about how we are going to defend our wives, our children, our homes, our city, our community, what we stand for and what we are part of. And in the Old Testament and the New Testament, God's very clear. He draws lines about who's supposed to be at that meeting and assembly and who's not. And the penalty, brothers and sisters, for participating in the ecclesia when you have not been invited or you are not a part of it, it's no joke. Jesus points this out in Matthew twenty-two thirteen, in the parable of the wedding feast, where there's someone who shows up at the wedding feast And they do not have a wedding garment. And the wedding garment and the wedding feast in that tradition is that's your past. That shows you've been invited. That you've been given by the host everything you need to participate. And what happens, brothers and sisters, to that person who decided to crash the party? It's a good party. There's a good wedding. I'm going to show up. There's probably some good food and some good wine and some other things. What happens in Matthew 22, 13? Oh, shows up and says, who's this person who doesn't have a wedding garment? Take this person, throw them out. And the person is essentially sent to a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hmm, what place is that? Okay? God does not take lightly, brothers and sisters, those who are part of the who are not part by His criteria, by the criteria of His Word, and yet attend. And that's why when there are folks who are in a church and it's very clear that there's no fruit in keeping with repentance... And the pattern of their life is demonstrating that Christ is not Lord. And it's coming out repeatedly. And people plead with them over and over and over and over again. And it would appear over time that there's a pattern that they do not know the Lord Jesus as their King and Lord. It is appropriate for the leaders of the church to sit down with this person and say, Hey, I'm not here to judge or say what's in your heart. But it appears that you don't know Jesus as Lord, and we beg you to repent and place your faith in Him and come to know you, know Him as Lord. But if over time there's resistance, 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 there's a loving warning, brother, sister, 
If you are going to insist on coming to the Lord's table and being in the church and participating as if you're a member, but you're not, your judgment is growing minute by minute, day by day. These are the things that Paul warns about, about coming to the table inappropriately, the Lord's Supper. The Lord's judgment is going to come in this world and in the next. And it's better for you to step away and call on the name of the Lord rather than to pretend and continue to mount up increasing amounts of judgment just like Matthew twenty-two thirteen. It's a loving thing to do for someone. When Jesus says, Upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. His church here is not unlike a Special Forces Unit, a team of elite soldiers who have been chosen, trained, assembled, and deployed, not by themselves, oh, we got together to do this, but by their commander and by their king and their country, where they are being called to invade a hostile and enemy territory on behalf of their king. It's the idea of the gates of hell will not prevail, that there's an attack that's happening here. And where they are to rescue and retake what rightfully belongs to their king. I had a professor whose son became a a Green Beret. And my professor walked me through the selection process and everything that happened. How his son was picked and showed promise and selected and invited to train. And all the different steps and all the different testing and training that this young man went to. And that ultimately, at the end of this brutal and grueling process of selection and weeding out, how with tears in his eyes, he stood as a young man who felt privileged to serve and stand with the other men and to stand for the American flag. And to wear that American flag wherever he went. Brothers and sisters, is this how we think of membership in the local church? That it is a calling and a privilege and a gift of God that we don't deserve, but that Christ has made possible and paid the account through the very blood that he shed on the cross. Church membership, brothers and sisters, is about the privilege of being called to serve Christ in His kingdom for Him in a battle for souls that belong to Him. And that brings us to our second point for this morning. Membership is the good news of God's work and God's Word in us. Membership is the good news of God's work and Word in us, not man's work or word. To be considered for membership at Lighthouse Bible Church San Jose, we ask those who are interested to participate in a process where you're invited to a class, you're invited to participate in a class, you're invited to listen to the teaching of that class, you're invited to put an application in, which is typically reviewed by the elders and the leadership of the church and the new members committee. And we ask as well that you sit for an interview with the elders. Why do we do this? 
Well, in Matthew's gospel, we see that this is the pattern in Jesus' ministry. Jesus comes in in Matthew 4 and He preaches the gospel. And He calls and commands His disciples to repent and follow Him. And then He takes them through a membership class in Matthew 5-7. through It's called the Sermon on the Mount. That's what that is. He rolls out to them what it means to be a citizen in the kingdom of heaven. What it means to be part of His fellowship and His ecclesia. And in Matthew 8-15... through He tests and He trains and He sends out His disciples. Disciples who He has prayed over and selected and chosen to go out in the mission. Twelve at one point, seventy-two in another. And then in verses 13 through 16 of this chapter of 16, Jesus gathers His disciples together in a small group in a pagan territory called Caesarea Philippi. And in many ways, what He runs them through here is not unlike a membership interview. He wants to know what's in their hearts. And he wants to know what they think of him in comparison to what everybody else thinks of him. Brothers and sisters, the heart of membership is about our relationship with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Plain and simple. It's not what you can bring to the table. It's not what talents you have in the world. It's not what you think you can do, the skills that you have. It's what's in your heart. And your relationship with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that is what Jesus is after. And I hope as a church together, coming together, that's what we're trying to do in this application process, is to sit with someone, not stand over them and say, let's come together and let's look at the teaching of Christ's Word and let's consider, what's your relationship? Do you belong to Him? And in verse 13 through 16, Jesus begins, he says, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And that term, Son of Man, is a term that Jesus used about himself repeatedly throughout the gospel. And that term, people, that he's using, who do people say that the Son of Man is? People, Jesus is referring to the many who had chosen to check Jesus out. Come along, be fed by His meals, see His miracles, listen to what He's preaching and teaching, and to see, is is this man indeed legit? Is he indeed someone to follow? Is he indeed the Messiah? And by and large, these were Jews who knew their Scripture. They'd been raised on it, just like you and I, in Sunday school and in church. They were familiar with what the Bible said about the Messiah. They had witnessed His preaching and teaching and miracles and ministry. They had eaten from bread that He had created out of nothing. Now, not infrequently, when we have our membership interviews, people will be nervous, and I understand that. And I try and remind them, hey, don't. this is not a job interview. This is not a place where you've got to get all the right answers, and if you get 7 out of 10 You go to heaven, and if you don't, you know, you get the boot. That's not what this is about. It's about us together understanding through the light of God's Word what Jesus is doing in your life. Because as we look at this, if there was anyone who should have been able to give the right answers, if being a member was about having the right experience, the right education, the right opinions being smart enough, it would be these people. The people. They would be at the top of the class. They had Jesus as their seminary professor. 
They had Jesus as their shepherd. They witnessed miracles. Who would be in a better position if this is a work of man, if this is about your experience, what you see? But brothers and sisters, it's not about going to seminary, though we should go. It's not about being involved in a church program, though we should participate. It's not about coming to church on Sunday, though we should be here. Those things do not change your heart. Jesus does. Those things, if your heart is given over to Him, will add to your life and build you up, but they are not a substitute for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that's something I'm going to say for us as a church, as an Asian American church, where many of us have grown up in Asian American churches, it's what we struggle with. It seems weird and uncomfortable because our benchmarks of what membership is about is what we grew up with. Women pastors, missions, summer camps, all of those things, all... Some of them, okay? Some of them good things, okay? But what, what, it's our experience. But brothers and sisters, your experience is never going to get you into heaven because it's never enough to cover your sins. But Christ is, and that's the beauty and good news of Jesus Christ. And that's why tax collectors and prostitutes and the worst of sinners came to him because they realized he could do something that the synagogue and the temple and all those other things and the Pharisees and Sadducees could never do. He could forgive them because he had the power and authority to forgive them and make them into new people. These were the people who should have had all the right answers. But what was their response? The people are unable to see and agree who Jesus is and they're confused. Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. They can't decide. The jury's out. And they're close. But close is not good enough. Believing that Jesus is a prophet. The Mormons. The Muslims. They all believe that Jesus is someone special. It's not good enough brothers and sisters. Because that's heresy. And that's exactly where Satan leads you. Brothers and sisters. You can choose to follow Jesus. And check him out. And never know who he truly is. And sadly, that is what passes for much of American Christianity. And in response to the answer that his disciples give, Jesus in verse 15 presses his disciples further because it's not enough. But who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Brothers and sisters, if you're going to be a member of Christ church, sooner or later, you're going to have to answer that question. Who do you, not who your parents, not who your friends, not the people you roll with, not what you heard Pastor Mark say. Who do you say that Jesus is? And on behalf of the 12 disciples, Peter replies in verse 16. He says, you are the Christ. You are not a Christ. You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. You are not one of many. You are not an important leader who we learn how to protest from. Jesus stands above and alone. The one and only. That word Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, which is Greek for Messiah. The anointed one. The one anointed and sent by God with His Holy Spirit as as the promised King and Deliverer of God's people from their sin. 
The phrase, the Son of the Living God, it's a messianic title that emphasizes the Son's divine authority and His unique relationship with the God of Scripture, that He is equal with God. In fact, this is what's used against Jesus in charges of blasphemy that ultimately the high priest will use to crucify Him. By saying you're the Son of the Living God or alluding to that, you're saying you're equal with God. So we should stone you or crucify you. And essentially what Peter's saying, and I'm sure Peter at the time did not understand all the theological implications that have filled textbooks throughout the history of the world. But he was aware that what he was saying was a summation of all Scripture says about the Messiah. And what he is saying for our benefit by the power of the Holy Spirit, is a summation of all that Scripture says about the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. He's essentially confessing that the person before Him is, according to God's Word, the rightful King of Kings, Lord of Lords. He's essentially confessing that Jesus is Lord of all. Brothers and sisters, do you know this Jesus? Is He your friend? Is He your homeboy? Do you know Jesus, the one who is present with us right now as Lord of all? The one we cannot see, but we know through His Word and through the power of His Spirit. Is this the conviction and confession and testimony of your life, of your marriage, of your parenting, of your work, of your studies, that every aspect of your life is a testimony your service and your ministry, your social media, what you post, each and every single one, that every word that comes out of your mouth is accountable to the presence of Jesus Christ as Lord of all, as He sits there and watches, as you do all of these things. Brothers and sisters, when you know Him as Jesus as Lord of all, when you know Him as the Jesus of Scripture, the Good Shepherd who loves and takes care of His sheep, Yes, it's something that fills us with fear and reverence, but it also fills us with joy and comfort. Because we are not alone, and the one who is with us loves us and will take care of us and will wash us with His Word, and He's going to get us to where we need to be. We are not alone. It's the confession, brothers, of our lives that we belong to Him. Do you belong to Him? Do our Instagram and Facebook posts belong to Him? Well, in verse 17 through 18, Jesus shows the disciples and us, this is Jesus' criteria for membership in His church. Do we belong to Him? Do we know Him as Lord of all? And in response to Simon Peter's confession, Jesus declares, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. What's Jesus saying here? It's obvious. Simon Barjona, these words that you're saying, this is not the work and labor 
that you achieved on your own. You as the fisherman did not come up with this. Your father didn't teach it to you. You didn't learn this in the synagogue. This isn't the benefit of a great seminary or college education or participating at a famous mega church. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood, that means man or humanity, has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He's telling Simon Peter that this conviction, that Jesus is Lord of all, and that Simon Peter belongs to him, this is a supernatural revelation and blessing from God the Father. This is God's work and word in Simon Peter. And this is the only thing that enables someone truly to surrender the entirety of their life with the conviction by faith that their life does not belong to themselves. It belongs to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And then Jesus says, And I tell you, you are Petros. Meaning, Petros, rocky, or a little rock. And on this Petra, there's a difference, Petros, Petra. Petra is a cliff, a boulder, or a mountain range. I will build my church. What's Jesus doing here? In Genesis 2, God tells Adam to name the animals. And he brings the animals to Adam. And then he creates a woman out of his rib and he brings that woman to Adam. And eventually Adam will name that woman. He's not saying that woman is an animal. That's not what the text is saying. What he's showing is that creation God is giving them, they belong under Adam's oversight. And this woman who he's created out of the rib, she belongs to Adam. That's not an excuse for an abuse of power. It's in a world without sin where there is unity in love and holiness. Jesus is renaming Simon. I'm calling you Petros, Rocky. The little stone. You now belong to me. Simon Bar-Jonah. You used to belong to your father, Bar-Jonah. Son of Jonah. That's how people knew you before. They're no longer going to know you that way anymore. You're going to be known as my child and my son. Based on this work and word of God that God the Father has done in your life and changed your life. You belong to me. Membership, brothers and sisters, is all about belonging to Jesus as Lord of all. What is this significance of this name Petros? Throughout Scripture, what is the rock? Who is the rock? Well, if you go to a Google and do a Google search, your Google search for the rock is going to bring up Dwayne Johnson. It's not who he's talking about. Throughout Scripture, the Lord is the rock. 1 Samuel 2.2, there is none holy like the Lord, no rock like our God. Psalm 18.31, and who is a rock except our God? Psalm 31, from which we read this morning, you are my rock. And then Jesus in Matthew 7.24, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on what? The Petron. Same word as Petra. The unchanging and immovable 
and all-powerful Lord of all. So when Jesus says to Simon Peter, but I tell you, you are Petros, a little rock, and on this Petra, I will build this mountain range, I will build my church. Jesus is making a play or a pun on the Greek word for rock. Simon Peter, because of God's blessing and work in your life, you belong to me now. You are no longer a child of flesh and blood. You are a child of the rock. You are part of me. You are like me. God has made you like me and a part of me. We use that idiom, a chip off the old what? Block, when a father is like the son. The mighty rock of God's word, the Lord, that is what Peter has become a chip off of. And it is upon the life and the word of this rock that Jesus is going to build his church. It's himself. Jesus as Lord of all. Not our choice, not our interest, not our participation. It's upon this rock, Jesus as Lord of all, that Jesus promises to build His church. How? By gathering to Himself those little stones whom God has blessed and made like Him. Membership in the church is about Jesus building on Himself and His Lordship. By gathering together little stones who are chips off the old block. Gathering together those who God's work and word resides in. Does that mean we have to be perfect, brothers and sisters? That's what people say when we go through this interview process. Well, it doesn't mean I've got to be sinless to get... No, absolutely not. What we're considering together, was Peter perfect? At this point, no. You're going to read in a few, the rest of the chapter, how Peter blows it big and he's referred to as Satan. Yes, you can be a believer and at times do things and express things that are allying and helping Satan more than you're helping Jesus. And we've all failed in that way. No, the issue with Peter, when he was corrected, he received that correction. He learned from Jesus. And at the end of the day, in his good moments and his bad moments, Jesus was always his Lord. He belonged to Jesus. And that's essentially what we're looking for. And what do we look for? We're looking for fruit in keeping with repentance. That in your life, there's evidence that what, however small, you belong to Jesus. Because that's Jesus' criteria, brothers and sisters, for membership in the local church. And that's what He's doing. And that's what we're doing as a church is we're gathering together on Christ's behalf. Lost sheep who Jesus is calling together to be part of his team and his work and his ministry. And this brings us to our next point. Christ makes his members a part of his good work. Christ makes his members a part of his good work. The good news of God's word is that when God makes Jesus Lord of all in our lives, he brings us to repentance from sin and faith in Christ. And when he does that, there are three good works that the Lord does in every child of God's life. You might not feel it, you might not see it, but it is there and there will be tangible fruit. He makes us part of Jesus. He unites our lives with Christ. 
We belong to Him. We're united with Him. And He does so by filling us with His Spirit. He makes us part of His church. If you belong to Jesus, you are part of His ecclesia. You don't get one without the other. He makes us part of Jesus. He makes us part of His church. And He makes us part of His good work. Which is building His church. I will build my church. There's no place in the local church, brothers and sisters, for sitting and watching and lollygagging and looky-loose. You've been called for a reason. To be part of Christ's team. And He has a job for you and He's gifted you and He's blessed you. And He's given you everything that you need to be part of His team and to serve in some way. Maybe it's a word of encouragement at the end of the day. Maybe it's helping someone get a meal. Maybe it's the gift of mercy and grace or encouragement or service. Whatever it is, that's a gift from the Lord that He's given through the power of His Spirit. And, and as we read through the rest of the New Testament, Paul makes that point. God's design is for each of us to do our, our part. Some is more visible, the pulpit, than others. But it's no less important because... The one it matters to most, brothers and sisters, is not the people who are watching. It's our Father in heaven. It's Christ who is present. It's Jesus who is Lord of all. He's the one we're serving. And as such, brothers and sisters, because He's called us to be part of His work, which is building His church, that's what He's doing. It's both an undeserved privilege, but it's also, brothers and sisters, non-optional. How many Navy SEALs or Rangers, when they're called upon to enter enemy territory and do a work and service for their country, how many, when their commander tells them that they've been called up, how many of them stop and say, ah, not feeling it today, just you know, not sure where my head's at, you guys go on, I'll catch up on the next flight, I'm going to sit this one out. How many of them send letters to their commanders and just write, yeah, in a strange place this week, so I'm going to take a break. You won't see me for a few weeks, but when I'm done, I'll be back and be happy to be part of the team. And yet throughout Scripture, brothers and sisters, both Paul and Jesus use repeated references to the military to give an understanding of Jesus as Lord and the work He's doing, which is an invasion of, of enemy territory in order to rescue souls that have been kidnapped and taken hostage by a terrorist organization under the authority of Satan and those who work for him. That's exactly how they spell it out. When Jesus says to Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail, Jesus shows Peter and us his building of his church is His gospel invasion into the kingdom of darkness to reclaim what is rightfully His. Brothers and sisters, that's why we're here. That's why we're saved. That's why we've been delivered. He's rescued us. And He's done so for Himself. And it's a good work that He's done. And it's part of a good work where He continues to rescue sinners in us and through us 
from the wrath that is to come, from the judgment that will come, and one day to help him as he establishes a physical and spiritual kingdom here on earth. That's what we're waiting for. And this, brothers and sisters, is the battle that every member of the local church, of Christ's church, is a part of. And it's a joy, brothers and sisters, and it's a privilege. Why? Because this is His work, and it's not ours. And that's why He calls us, on the one hand, count the cost. This is a battle. You're going to get bloody and you're going to get bruised. Count the cost. Brothers, you know it. Ministry hurts. Ministry is hard. You do get whacked in ministry. But you know what? It's worth it. And there's hope because it's His work, not ours. And He says the gates of hell will not prevail. It means He's going to win. There's hope and there's joy because the one who builds this church is Lord of all. And He builds it with us, brothers and sisters. His presence is there. And we experience His fellowship. And we experience His joy even as we at times suffer for the sake of the gospel. And in verse 19, we see that what Jesus does is He does not hold an interest meeting or ask for volunteers. He chooses who will lead His church. He chooses who will lead His team. And it is the man whom God has transformed into a little rock, who He has made part of Christ, who He has made part of Christ's church, who He has made part of Christ's work. This is who He chooses. Jesus makes Peter part of His work by giving Peter the keys of the kingdom. What are the keys? Keys are something that lets you into a castle or to a courtyard or to a household. Peter is going to have the responsibility on Christ's behalf to affirm or deny who belongs to the church and who does not. Who's allowed into the assembly and who is not. And he's given the authority to bind and loose on earth what God has bound and loosed in heaven. It's the idea of binding and loosing, of affirming what is permitted and what is forbidden in the local church and in Christ's kingdom. Essentially, Peter is given the privilege, God having worked in him, belonging to Christ, called by Christ, to affirm who is and who is not a true member of Christ, who is and who is not a true member of Christ's church, who is and who is not a true member of Christ's work, who belongs to Jesus as Lord of all. Who is to come in, who is to be kept out. And what is permitted and what is not permitted in the church. The little rock will be responsible for affirming in the church what the big rock has laid out in his word. It's like an ambassador in a consulate like a commander of a team who's out in the field. He is only following the commands of those who have sent him. He is not functioning independently. And in the book of Acts, chapter 1 through 8, this is the leadership role that Peter has. At Pentecost, and then with Cornelius and the Gentiles, affirming who God has brought into the church according to Christ's word. And then in Acts 15, Peter, along with James, as Paul comes, and they present this ministry that's growing among the Gentiles, they make the statement of who is affirmed as being part of Christ's work and His ministry in His church, and who is not. And then they go on and state what is 
bound and what is loosed. This is what is permissible in the church and this is what is not permissible based on the word of the Lord. And then as we come to 1 Timothy, brothers and sisters, it's not the Pope. Paul hands this task off to Timothy and the leaders of the church and the members of the church. That's what he's writing about in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. I charge you. Don't let these men teach. Put these things before them. This is how men and women are to serve. This is prayer in the local church. This is how widows are to be taken care of. This is who is qualified to step in the pulpit and who is not. He's laying out for them the same things. That task of binding and loosing and keys, of affirming and denying what Christ has already affirmed and denied through the gospel and the lordship of Christ. This is the task of the church. And this is how the church is built up and strengthened and how it goes out and how it shares. Not us, brothers and sisters, in our love, but the love of Christ. It's a church, brothers and sisters, that is built not on us, our interests, and our ideas, but on the good news of Jesus Christ, the one who loved us and died for us so that we might be members of his church and his person and his work, not ours. And brothers and sisters, it's the highest privilege and joy anyone could have. Why? Because this is the work that Christ uses to save sinners. And this brings us to our final point this morning, which I'll tie everything up with, okay? Christ's members are joyfully submitted to Him as Lord of all by faith. Christ's members are joyfully submitted to Him as Lord of all by faith. In verse 20, Jesus says, after He's made this statement, it says, Then He strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that He was the Christ. Jesus, what are you doing? It's the magic moment. Simon Peter's just had his epiphany. Doesn't get better than this. Blessed are you. Now you want us to tell no one? Of course, you have to read the rest of the gospel to understand what Jesus is doing. And very clearly in the rest of the chapter, the disciples do not understand why Jesus is giving that command. Does it stop the responsibility from obeying Jesus, even if they did not understand what he was saying? Absolutely not. Brothers and sisters, in church ministry, we do not understand much of what is going on. But if it is in the word of the Lord, and that's our protection, whether I understand it or not, that's Christ. He's Lord of all. He's smarter than I am. He's holier than I am. He knows the end from the beginning. He's got a good track record. It's called the cross. If he asks me to do it, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I can joyfully submit to it because I know he loves me and he gave his life for me. All he needs to do is ask. That should be enough because of who he is and that's what the Roman centurion did when he came and approached Jesus for healing you don't need to come to my house I'm a man with authority I say to this person go and they go no questions asked Jesus you say it 
It's done. He understood. Jesus is Lord of all. And that's why Jesus marvels and said, Is there faith like this in Israel? What is a church member, according to Jesus? It's someone whom God has made a part of Jesus, a part of His church, a part of His work of building His church, according to His word. And because of that, they submit joyfully to Jesus and His word as Lord of all. Jonathan Lehman in his book says there's eight ways to submit to a local church. Publicly, that's through baptism and the Lord's Supper. That's what we do in baptism and the Lord's Supper, brothers and sisters. We're coming up and making a public statement. We belong to Him. Physically and geographically, socially, affectionately, financially, vocationally. He says Christians submit their vocation to their church. Whoa. What a bad thought that is in today's day and age. Christians submit their vocation to their church. By the way, Pastor Mark, I'm moving to Timbuktu. Ethically, spiritually. And then at the end he talks about submitting to ugliness. Submitting to the church is submitting to ugliness. Guess what? We're accountable to one another. And guess what? You find out that Pastor Mark has sin and everybody else has sin. We wake up some mornings on the wrong side of the bed. But brothers and sisters, the good news is our joy and perfection is in Christ, not us. And he's going to finish the work that he's begun in our lives. And we submit to ugliness because that's what Jesus in love did for us. He did it for you. Were you pretty and good looking when Jesus died for you? Here in his love, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the sweet thing, brothers and sisters, is through his power and righteousness... And through His Word and through His Spirit, He gives us an opportunity to do the same. When our kids are sick, is the care hard? Yes. Do we sometimes wish we could go back to sleep? Absolutely. But at the end of the day, brothers and sisters, is it a joy and a privilege and a blessing to take care of a child who God has given us? 200%. And I remind myself of that because I became a father late and married late. Most of the people thought when I was in seminary, he's going to be single forever. And when it gets hard, I remind myself, look, I don't deserve any of this. Similarly to the church. When church ministry gets hard, brothers and sisters, I remind myself, I could still be a physician in Culver City. Sitting in a church, participating, serving, putting checks in the offering plate, doing what I can. But I get a chance. To submit to ugliness, to love sinners, and to be part of Christ's good work of bringing lost sheep to know the greatest love and the greatest Savior and the greatest Lord of all, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It does not get better than that, brothers and sisters. This, brothers and sisters, is what membership is all about. It's belonging to Christ. It's belonging to His church. It's belonging to His work. And so this morning, brothers and sisters, as we think about this, think about our lives. Is He Lord of all? Do we belong to Him? Think of the areas in your life that He's coming after you. Maybe it's your work. Maybe it's your family. That He's calling you to surrender to Him and say, let me be Lord of all. And as you surrender and repent and place your faith in Him, brothers and sisters, give Him thanks that you are so privileged and so blessed that the Lord will call you to be part of His team.
And then with joy, brothers and sisters, take that gift of love and share it with others. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, what a gift it is to be a member of your church and your ministry. You're doing a mighty work in our midst. You've blessed this church. You've set prisoners free. You've been kind and gracious. Has it been easy? No. But you've given us, Lord Jesus, the privilege of serving you. And in this life and the next life, there is no greater privilege, Lord Jesus. You've provided everything we need to do so. Thank you for doing this. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Jesus is the head of the church. And uh, the sermon just very well